Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I'm your co-host, Ken Hellenius, sitting in my home studios in South Bend, Indiana. And sitting across from me is the man who holds the record for the lowest golf score ever with a 61. But he insists he would have shot a 59 if it weren't for that pesky windmill on hole 16. It's Deacon <laughs> Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon. <laughs> How are you doing, Ken? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. I I'm not going to lie to you. I love mini golf. When I pass by a place like you will be driving along. And if I see a mini golf place, my, I'm like a, I'm like a dog that sees another dog on the side of the street. My head snaps back as we pass by. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> That's awesome, man. Actually, Julie and I had talked about replacing part of our front yard with some with some uh, uh, astroturf and putting together a little mini golf kind of <laughs> spot on, in our front yard, but uh, yet. someday soon. Uh, that'd be awesome, man. Isn't it though? Wow, I haven't played mini golf forever. Gosh. <laughs> It's a great activity. I, I use when I was a residence hall director at the University of Portland, I used to take our RAs, you know, we'd go out mini golfing, you know, at least once a semester kind of deal if we could. And and uh, I mean it's just a silly activity, but golly, it's fun. I'm telling you. Play, work on your short game, Deacon. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I always hit the ball too hard though. That's all that's one thing. I was last time I remember playing, I was just hitting it too hard. There's you go. When it comes right back to you. Yeah, a little yeah. nuance. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Subtle. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, uh, how are things in South Bend? South Bend is good. We're uh, entering into the summertime, and so it's uh, the weather is lovely in June for the most part. We begin to get thunderstorms around now, you know, uh, and so there's lots of lots of variety, and but it means I get to mow the lawn at least at least once a week, sometimes twice a week because it grows furiously. And so, yeah, we're, we're, things are good. How about you? How are things in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, things are good here. You know, we're, we're getting into that uh, time of year where it's not raining a whole lot and getting that beautiful uh, Pacific Northwest summer, low humidity. Uh, You know, a lot of, some people get into the nineties here, you know, people say, Oh, it's so hot. It's like, no, (laughs) <laughs> you know, try, try, try Jersey or, or Washington, D.C. Or, or Florida or Texas or this Indiana. Here we have 80 to 100 percent humidity on yeah. top of the hot weather. That feels like when you walk outside, it feels like you're in an oven. Yuck. Like literally in an oven yeah. cooking. You know, <laughs> I tell people it's like uh, going into the locker room after the big game and living there constantly. No bueno, as they say. Yeah, yeah. Although I do miss good thunderstorms, though. We don't, we don't get many thunder. Rarely yeah. get them out here. But I remember just as, um, you know, when they come through and you see the lightning and boom, and that booming thunder and the rain, and there's just something very cleansing about that. Yeah. You know, like after you know, there's a certain smell in the air after a thunderstorm, you know, and it kind of cools things down. Uh, these are I mean, childhood memories for me. You know, it kind of cools things down. And remember, we had to run into the house because you know. You know, there's no no internet back then. So if mom called or something, you know, you just she stuck her head out the window and yelled. That that, right, that, right. that got your attention. So we'd run home and just kind of wait out the storm before we can go out. And then it, and then 
the heat would come back, you know, and it's, you see the the steam kind of evaporating off the the the, the tar, you, yeah. Know, yeah. you know. You're just waiting for it to dry so you can go back out and play. You know, it's just just some <laughs> wonderful childhood memories of summer growing up in the East Coast. Wow, I did not realize that I was going to inspire a Proustian memory moment here with <laughs> yeah. Harold and fireflies too. I miss the, oh. miss the fireflies. I used, that was a fireflies. That was a awesome. staple of our summer. Yeah. We Julie had never seen a firefly in real life until we moved here to Indiana. And it's a it's a pretty short window here. It's about six weeks. But in the evening, it has to be just the right temperature and just the right humidity. But they are beautiful. And, and our dogs are absolutely fascinated by them. And, you know, they want to jump after them and chase them. I, fireflies are beautiful. It's a, yeah, they are. Neat phenomenon. Yeah. Thanks. And, Thanks and it's totally harmless. I mean, we used to hold, yeah. catch them and hold them, and they used to walk on our arms and stuff like that. And sometimes we used to collect a, collect a bunch of them in a jar and try to use them as a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> Kids, man. Kids. Oh, it's just so, so funny. But those are just wonderful summer memories. You know, that I just haven't had that experience for a long time. You know, just we don't have fireflies. Out here. We don't have thunderstorms out here. Very different experience of summer. And it actually stays light out here longer. Too, right. um, right. than than it does in the east, you know, in the summertime. So, yeah, so some some new memories. The Pacific Northwest summer, fun. Well, as I said, thank you, Lord, for the wonderful uh, creation of fireflies because they yeah. are beautiful and simply for the sake of joy. I mean, they're just joyful. What a neat exactly. thing. Well, we have been chatting about Pope John Paul II's wonderful 1995 encyclical Evangelium Vitae, the gospel of life. And we're picking up our conversation this week with chapter three, which has pretty much the straightforward title, You Shall Not Kill, God's Holy Law. And so uh, we're going to talk tonight. We're going to pick up then at the beginning of chapter three, paragraph 52 on gospel and commandment, the, um, and how they, they complement one another. So, that's where we start tonight. Yeah, it says that God's, and this is important, it says God's commandments is never detached from his love. Right. Again, as we talked about last time, how it, uh, law is not, God's law is not oppressive. He's not trying to control us. So it is always a gift meant for man's growth and joy. And when that is lived out, it becomes gospel. It becomes the gospel itself, joyful, good news. That's what the commandments are. You know, and again, literally in Hebrew, it's not it's not the Ten Commandments. It's the Aseret Hadibrot in Hebrew, which literally means the Ten Words of God. Because mm-hmm. um, mitzvah is, is commandments in Hebrew, but that's not the word that's used either in Exodus or Deuteronomy. It's a, it's hadibrot, um, which is the words the words of God. See, so it's not just this commandments. God's just telling us what to do. Uh, it, it's it's the ten words of God. So God's speaking to us intimately and personally in that word. You know, and I think that's we have to change our mindset when it when it comes to how God. You know, again, we live in a culture that says, well, I don't, you should as a Catholic, you Catholics should not impose your teachings and will on us. We're not doing that. We're standing up for issues of life, um, which is what this whole encyclical letter is about. We're standing up for the gospel. We're standing up for the truth. 
we're standing up for people that are defenseless, that can't defend themselves against the onslaught of the culture that doesn't see them as human beings made in the image and likeness of God. We're upholding God's law, which is actually the 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 how they brought speaks to the um, the natural moral law, right? So all the all the commandments are is, is an articulation of of the inner natural moral law that God's implanted in the heart of every single human being, you know, where we can we we can come to know God by by reason alone. And 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 because the Israelites are a little bit hard headed, God had to spell it out for them. In these ten in these ten beautiful words of God. And of course it's not just the Israelites who are hard headed because we <laughs> as the spiritual successors remain the same way. And yes. we too need to be called to this. <laughs> as we chatted last week, the idea of the prophets who continually call the Israelites back to remember the words that God gave them. Remember these commandments. They are an invitation to be faithful. Um, John Paul goes on to say, in giving life to man, God demands that he love, respect, and promote life. The gift thus becomes a commandment, and the commandment is itself a gift. It's an inversion of the idea that the commandment limits our freedom, because the very fact that we can do anything is already a gift. And so it is a, a response in justice that we promote respect and and uh, show dignity to life because it's the justice that we even exist itself right uh gk chesterton is the one who often pointed out he's like don't be surprised at the miracle be surprised that anything at all happens i mean that itself is the wonder that we need uh, that is at the core of this and John Paul goes on to say that man, as the living image of God, is willed by his creator to be ruler and lord. So we were created to to be, stand in the place of God and to rule all of creation. But this is a privilege and a responsibility. As he goes on to say, man's lordship, however, is not absolute, but ministerial. It is a real reflection of the unique and infinite lordship of God. Hence, man must exercise it with wisdom and love, sharing in the boundless wisdom and love of God. And, it, and this comes about through obedience to God's holy law. It's when we recognize in our hearts, when we recognize the natural law that's in our hearts, and we live in accordance with that, that we are properly exercising this ministerial stewardship of God's creation. Exactly right. And that same dynamic can be found in the lived experience, uh, in marriage, right? I mean, the, the, the fact that the man is the head of the house, which St. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, 21 through 31, um, he, he, when, he, when he says that the man is the head of his wife, but it, so what is he talking about there? It, it's not a lordship, that, actually that's absolute, like you have to do everything I tell you to do, but ministerial. So again, it's that idea that headship and leadership and authority is rooted in service, is rooted in ministry, is rooted in gift of self. Um, it's rooted in obedience to God's law. <laughs> you know, Th right. that's that's the piece that that we miss. Um, and uh, again, with the, with the priesthood, you know, you're living that reality as the head of a parish. You know, even in the secular world, if you're the head of a company. Your responsibility are to, 
you know, it, it's not not pr even primarily. I would say to your shareholders, although that's the that's the criteria that the secular world uses. I think it's a responsibility to the people who are making you the money, right? <laughs> you know, like primarily, uh, as long as you do the right thing for the people who work for you, uh, it's a win-win because they'll work harder for you because they see that they're receiving benefits, and you're receiving um, benefits, and your shareholders receive the benefit. The company grows and creating more jobs. And, you know, um, helping to, to stimulate economic growth, which is good. It's good for the city to get to get a wider tax base because then people are then now able to afford houses. You know, so now they have a, 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 the dignity of the human person respect because now they have property they can actually own and something they can use as an investment for later on in life. I mean, there's so many the ripple effects. If if we do the right thing, you know, it leads to so many other good things in the culture. Yeah. That's that's the call and the challenge, right? To to be proper stewards. And in fifty three, uh, the next section is this idea that um, again, human life is sacred and inviolable. Kind of going a little deeper into this, um, as he leads off, human life is sacred because from its beginning it involves the creative action of God, and it remains forever in a special relationship with the Creator, who is its sole end. He gets into an interesting idea here that is that because God is the absolute Lord of life, um, who is formed in his image and likeness, he, he says um, human life is thus given a sacred and inviolable character, which reflects the inviolability of the creator himself. Precisely for this reason, God will severely judge every violation of the commandment, you shall not kill. He, God, is the goel, the defender of the innocent. And the goel, this is a, a Hebrew word, G-O-E-L, goel. He says um, that is in the Bible and in rabbinic tradition, the person who, as the nearest relative of another, is charged with the duty of restoring the rights of another and avenging his wrongs. So the goel is the redeemer. So when Job writes, I know that my redeemer lives, He's writing, I know that there is a Goel who will redeem me and the injustices that have been inflicted upon me. God is the Redeemer. And of course, we know that Christ is the Redeemer of all humankind. Christ is the one who, who redeems the, the uh, injustices against us. Um, as it says, he sho God shows thus that he does not delight in the death of the living, only Satan can delight therein because it's Satan is filled with envy and Satan is filled with envy because he is not the Lord of life, but rather he's the only, he's the one who takes life away. That's who Satan is, the father of lies and the liar um, and the deceiver who is the one who, as you've pointed out before, Deacon, in, in previous chats about this, he's the one who, who initially said, you know, don't listen to God. You will be like gods if you just disobey God in this one commandment, the one commandment not to eat of the flesh of the tree of life. So this is the the, the image of God as our redeemer is at the key, is at the center of this section here. Yeah, and which is also why Satan goes after the woman, the one who bears life. Right. You know, the, the last act of God's created activity was to create the one who brings forth life. You know, and that's why Satan went after her first to destroy the one who gives life. 
Um, and, uh, and, and how does he do it? By lying. Uh, and that's what we have to realize today. I mean, the, the, the culture is looking us in the face and lying to us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, um, and so many uh, Catholics are just buying into it. You know, there was so much uproar that came when um, Archbishop Cordy alone of San Francisco issued his document, Before I Formed You in the Womb, I Knew You, which is a direct quote from Jeremiah. And um, in there, he, at the end of the document, you know, uh, talks about politicians and re- and receiving communion. And he said, you know, he intimates in there that, that they should be, they should not, by their own decision and their, their own way of living, should not, should be, communion should be withheld from them. And there was this uproar in the secular media about that. Well, most Catholics think that, you know, well, by you know, the president or whoever, uh, these politicians never, um, Talk about the morality of it, you know. This is, you know, they're just saying that they, you know, they can't impose it on everybody. And plus, most Catholics don't believe that anyway. So, so what? It's ain't a majority opinion, right? You know, it's just right. the Jesus say, "Oh, let me get a majority opinion before I teach you about this." No, take it's a not, that's not check with McKinsey and see what the what I should teach today. As, right, uh, it's not right. what the Lord right. said, right? <laughs> right, right. This paragraph fifty four. Uh, kind of uh, we've we've hinted at it progressive maturation in understanding the negative prohibition against killing you know in the we we understand thou shalt not kill is a negative prohibition um john paul but it uh, progressively develops into an understanding that we need to love one another's neighbor as ourselves so john paul says the people of the covenant although slowly and with some contradictions progressively matured in this way of thinking and thus prepared for the great proclamation of Jesus that the commandment to love one's neighbor is like the commandment to love God. Um, The church continues to reflect upon and understand the full import of this meaning, such that even from the earliest ages, you know, the kind of the post-apostolic age, from the Didache, for example, um, the the teaching of the twelve apostles is the do- document, the Didache, in the in the late first century, early second century. Um, it repeated the commandment that thou shalt not kill when it said there are two ways, a way of life and a way of death. There is great difference between them. In accordance with the precept of the teaching, you shall not kill. You shall not put a child to death by abortion, nor kill it once it is born. The way of death is this. They show no compassion for the poor. They do not suffer with the suffering. They do not acknowledge their creator. They kill their children and by abortion cause God's creatures to perish. They drive away the needy, oppress the suffering. They are advocates of the rich and unjust judges of the poor. They are filled with every sin. May you be able to stay ever apart, O children, from all these sins. What I just quoted was written within 20 years of the death of the last apostle, if not earlier than that. This, I mean, explicitly condemning abortion has been part of the church's understanding of what it means to fulfill the commandments since the very beginning. We're not talking about something that all of a sudden we made out of thin air in the 70s. No, we're talking about a constant teaching of the church. Well, you know what? It may well have been made, been been first written down in the 70s, the zero seven zeros, not the 1970s. Okay, we're talking about from the earliest ages of the church. Um, 
And we've continued constantly to underscore this absolute and unchanging value of the commandment, thou shalt not kill. You know, in that section of the Didache, actually, which is uh, is called it is an, is considered Enchiridion, or a manual or handbook of the apostles. Yeah. The, the very first section where John Paul II is quoting from, again, it's very important that Ken was not quoting John Paul II. John Paul II was quoting from the Didache. This, and if you get it online, you'll see that the first section it breaks down the two greatest commandments: love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And in this, the section under love your neighbor as yourself, it goes through, um, the, it says, for example, um, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery. You should, you should, it says you should not be sexually perverse. You should not be sexually promiscuous. You should not practice sorcery. Then it says you should not murder a child by abortion, nor kill a child at birth. And right? so, I mean, it's very specific in there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, about what, what, because they're spelling out. And again, they're addressing things that are going on in that first century. The, the, the things that Christians are seeing around them from the pagan cultures. And they're saying, look, we have to separate us. It's called the Kiddushim. We have to be the ones that are set apart. You know, we're, yes, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. So we have to, we have to put on, as St. Paul says, put on the mind of Christ. And in that, we're keeping the law. And in that, we're respecting life. You know, in, in, in its fullness, in its full meaning. So these are very specific things that are listed in the Didache, which I think absolutely beautiful. Um, I think, and John Paul um, makes that very um, uh, clear in his uh, treatment of it here. Yeah, and it's from there that he. I mean, again, he's building the case to show we've always believed this, and that, yes. and that we've continued to refine our understanding of what it means, such that in this next section, 55, he talks about self-defense and how self-defense is legitimate. Um, because, uh, as he says, you know, the, the in the Old Testament we read, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That implies that you also have to have self-love, too, and that you need to respect the dignity of your own human life as well. Um, he says, consequently, no one can renounce the right to self-defense out of the lack of love for life or for self. This can only be done in virtue of a heroic love. So here he's talking about it's like the martyrs are the fascinating kind of countersign to this, right? The martyrs who love life, they love Christ, they love themselves, but they are not the ones who are choosing death. It is being imposed upon them. But one can legitimately stand up in self-defense and, you know, use proportionate means to respond as well. Um, and he then goes on in 56 to talk about the death penalty. And the death penalty in, in for John Paul II, this uh, paragraph 56 is kind of the, the key here. It says, um, the, the basic concept is that the legitimacy of the death penalty balances the need for society to protect itself with the possibility of using bloodless means that, quote, correspond to the concrete conditions of the common good and are more in conformity to the dignity of the human person, end quote. Pope Francis has, has continued to reflect upon and build upon this and point out, and what John Paul is pointing out is that, like, in Western nations, in, you know, modern nations where we have the ability to lock up a a, a person who is a murderer, a person who would otherwise get the death penalty, injustice, 
we can protect ourselves as a society from those people without worrying about them escaping. You know, we can protect ourselves without actually killing them. And that's where he's under using the phrase, the, the bloodless means um, that are in conformity to the dignity of the human person. He says, sure, there is an absolute legitimate right for a state to impose the death penalty, but it's a prudential judgment that we don't need to because we can protect ourselves without going to that full distance. Um, and I think that this is a really important paragraph for all of us to, to read and reflect upon, again, in the context of the idea of dignity for all human life. And so that's that's something that I think is really kind of this in reading this with students before, I think uh, students kind of have their eyes open and, and realize, you know, that so often we let issues like the death penalty get wrapped up in our politics rather than in a full understanding of the dignity of human life. Yeah, because it's about retributive justice, right? Not revenge. There's, right. there's a big difference there. And one of the things that he points out here is that um, that imprisonment will, will help. It may be an incentive to change the person's behavior and right. become re rehabilitated. That's mercy. That's see, that's that's justice tempered with mercy. You know, uh, as what it's very clear in all the scriptures, and Jesus is very clear about this. In fact, John Paul II says that therefore, youth, the youth of the death penalty, although the state has a right to use it, says, and because of our penal system today, in such case, should be very rare, and if not practically non-existent. Right. See, that's the key. Doesn't doesn't say that we, you know, can't use it at all. But right now, the way things are, the way our our modern prison systems is we don't we don't have to use it, right? That and that's the point. Because again, we can protect ourselves by you know locking somebody up, but even that situation should be with dignity, right? It's not just lock somebody up and throw away the key and be well, stay warm and well fed, however you can inside the prison. Yeah, prisons are a hellscape. Let's let's admit that, and we need to also bring human dignity to those spaces. And that's an important ministry of the church, prison ministry, and in praying for those who have who are uh, incarcerated. These are ways that we can practice the gospel of life in our own lives. But unfortunately, Deacon, we're gonna, we've reached the end of our time together tonight, so we're going to pick up this challenge because paragraph 57 is one of the most critical paragraphs in the entire encyclical, and that's where we're going to start when we gather next week. Friends, we invite you to connect with us on Facebook. Just type in Living Stones Media, and we'll put some links to uh, some interesting uh, forms of ministry in prison and about the death penalty. We'll have some of that up on our Facebook page. You can also download previous episodes of the show at materdayradio.com. Deacon, until we gather next week, might we have a blessing? Sure, may Almighty God bless you and keep you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.